is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, some of you know that we are working our way through a sermon series on Sunday mornings, looking at the life of David. And this week, we're going to take a short break from that sermon series. We'll jump back into the life of David next week. This week, we get the opportunity to hear from our RUF campus minister at UTSA, Reverend Curtis Castleberry. Uh, Curtis and Marion have been on campus at our, at, uh, on, on the campus of UTSA for the past three years, and their goal there is to reach students for Christ, basically to tell them about Jesus and how much he loves them, and to equip them to serve. They walk alongside students uh, in their life issues, discipling them, um, training them, informing them in how they can live a life uh, where they walk with Jesus. And this morning, we get the opportunity to hear from Curtis. He's going to be preaching to us from Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there now. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. And we'll go ahead and invite Curtis up. Curtis, thanks for being here this morning. Thank you. <clears throat> well, it's great to be here with you today. So I watched a uh, or read an interview recently. Uh, Brad Pitt and Adam Sandler were being interviewed. Both of them are in movies right now that are critically acclaimed. Um, Adam Sandler for a recent one that's been, I think, nominated for Oscars now called Uncut Gems. But you may know Adam Sandler from his critically acclaimed classic, Happy Gilmore. For all of you golfers, you know you've tried the Happy Gilmore swing. Um, but you know you've seen it. This story he tells, uh, Brad Pitt tells as they're being interviewed together is a phenomenal story and it, I want to open our time with it. So he says, Pitt says, that Adam Sandler, um, this story that he heard from a director that used to be one of Adam Sandler's acting coaches when he was studying at NYU. He says that at one point, whenever they were in their studies, he comes to realize this coach that Adam Sandler doesn't have what it takes. So he kindly takes him out for a beer after uh, a class or at some point where they're able to get together and tells them, essentially, give up your dream of acting. This is what uh, the director told Brad Pitt. He says, think about something else. You have to choose another path. He asks Adam Sandler if it's true. He says, yes, exactly. That's what he told me. Pitt goes on. He says, there's another part of this story. This is why he says, Pitt says, it's his favorite Adam Sandler story. He says that when Adam Sandler, who eventually made a lot of money, and he still does now, um, but he, when he was at the height of his payday, runs into this guy, who uh, acting coach, who told him to quit. He was out with some friends at a bar and runs into this guy and Pitt says that if there's any time to rub it in somebody's face, this is the time to let them know, were you right or was I right? He says Sandler doesn't do it. He says he loves this story of Sandler because Sandler says when he introduces this old acting coach to him, he introduces him as the only teacher who ever bought him a beer. He says, is that true? And Adam Sandler says, yes. What we want to talk about this morning is two, are two things, really. Humility, and what does that actually have to say to our ambitions? James K. Smith says, you don't have to win, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to quit. Sometimes, under the guise of humility, we quit when we really should continue and persevere. I want to spend time explaining what humility is from our passage here in Philippians 2. And I also want to talk about the argument Paul makes for humility. How is he arguing that we become more humble people? And then I want to talk about what I want to call humble ambition. You see, ambition is like 
uh, without humility is like baking. Who bakes cookies? Has anyone ever forgotten to put an ingredient in there? When you go to pull the cookies out of the, the oven, like if you forget the leavening agent, they're not fluffy and, you know, chewy cookies. They're like, you know, dense or something. You can get ambition and when you pull it out of the oven, it looks like ambition. It just, there's something not right. There's something not right. Without humility, ambition is like bad cookies. Does it look like ambition? Sure. But we need humility to ground it. So let's read our passage this morning. Uh, It's printed for you in your bulletins or you can open your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Paul begins his passage here in Philippians 2 with an appeal to the Philippians. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, what is he saying? He's making an appeal to them because of their union with Jesus and God drawing them into community and God beginning a work in them by his Spirit, which he's he's talked about in chapter 1 in verse 6, where he says, that God has begun a good work in them and he will bring it to completion. He's saying, if this work has begun in you, if you're participating with the work of the Spirit, have this mind in yourself, unity. Have a common goal, a common attitude and and common actions toward one another. He calls, he appeals to them to be of one mind. He calls for them to, to, to humility. So let's look for a few moments at this call to humility. Well, what is humility? Humility, uh, Tim Keller has a great book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness where he defines it as uh, self-forgetfulness. He says it's a shift from our selfish ambition to selfless actions, selfless thoughts uh, uh, are, are being consumed by more than just the self and thinking about the other. Small uh, qualifier here. When we talk about self-forgetfulness, we're not talking about a total loss of yourself. You still remain, if you're humble, you still remain, you still have an identity. It's a question of letting go of that self or the desire to prove yourself or to make a name for yourself or to acquire more simply for yourself. It's about forgetting about yourself for a moment for the sake of considering someone else uh, as more important than yourself. But we'll talk about more on this in a second. But I have to, uh, So I have two diagnostic questions for you. As you think about humility, well, what happens to you whenever you're praised? What happens to you when you win? What happens when you're praised or when you win? 
And the second question is, what happens when you're critiqued? What happens when you lose? What happens in you whenever, like Adam Sandler, an acting coach comes and tells you, you don't have what it takes to cut it. You're not going to make it. What happens in you whenever you're, you, 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 you're, you're told you, you don't have what it takes to stay in that job? What happens whenever you don't actually get that promotion that you're dying to get? What happens in you? And also what happens whenever you win? Uh, Naomi uh, Osaka and Coco Golf. for anybody who likes uh, tennis and anybody watched the match, Australian Open was going on um, they, uh, just recently. And, uh, but the previous match that Naomi Osaka, who's a, who's a champion, ends up uh, playing against Coco Golf earlier, uh, and I guess it's been several months now. And they played against each other, and, and Osaka, who was a favorite, ends up winning. And uh, Golf, who's devastated, she's a 15-year-old girl who's playing at a really high level, ends up getting beat, right? And she's, of course, upset. Um, and Osaka, because Serena Williams at one point had beaten Osaka and given her time uh, in the spotlight after she had beaten her, and basically not to rub it in her face, but to show her, like, we want to celebrate your accomplishment here. What you've done is actually huge. Well, Osaka, now that she's beaten Coco Guff, 15-year-old rival here, brings her up after uh, when she's being interviewed as the, uh, as the champion here, the one who's just defeated her. She begins to uh, praise um, not only golf, but her parents too, and saying, you guys are awesome. You've done all the training. I, I, it's amazing that both of us have made it here. We were just together at one point, working hard uh, in the same training facility, and now we're both here on the stage. I think you guys are amazing to her parents, and I think, Coco, you're amazing too. She shares the spotlight with golf, and golf, through tears, says, she's been so sweet to me, so thank you for this. Thank you. Once again, thank you, Naomi. I don't want people to, to think I'm trying to take this moment away from her because she's the one who really deserves it, so thank you. What a great moment in humility. What a great moment of sharing uh, in humility and victory and in both and, and in loss. You don't have to win, but you don't have to quit. A couple of days ago, Australian Open's going on. Guess who got a rematch? Golf and Osaka, uh, and Osaka face each other again. And guess who won? Golf won. It's amazing. She says before this match, I think it's less pressure to win. I feel like for me, I'm just trying, I'm not trying to win so much, but I'm trying to play my best tennis on the court. Winning comes if I play good. And she won two straight sets. When you win, do you gloat and do you boast at the expense of the one that you've beaten? I'm not talking about friendly family rivalries, right? Because you play board games together and of course that happens, right? Um, when you lose, though, do you beat yourself up? Do you, does criticism go to your heart? When you win, does winning go to your head? And when you lose, does criticism go to your heart? If you answered yes to either one of those, there's humility that needs to be worked into us. You see, you won't find humility if you're prone to belittling yourself or self-deprecation or you, you think that humility is actually just a continual lowering of the self and, and belittling of the self and undervaluing the self. It's actually not. You'll never find humility when you're prone to self-deprecation. Humility, C.S. Lewis says, is not telling other people that you're a humble person. If, so, he says if somebody comes around and says that they're humble, um, it's a humble brag, really. He says it's actually not humility, it's pride. Humility is, is not 
looking at the self. It's not directing attention to the self. Tim Keller says that humility is, uh, is, it produces this shyness in us. This shyness, but is not afraid to accept recognition, to, rece- uh, to accept praise. You won't find humility when self is at the center of everything. So if we think about our ambition, you can be humble and still ask for a promotion. Do you know that? You can be humble and still go to your boss boldly and say, I think I actually do. Um, uh, the work that I'm producing actually does, uh, should warrant more pay for myself. Sometimes we are timid and we're, we're afraid to actually do that under the guise of humility, but in reality, it's not. Humility. James K. Smith says that this is not humility. This is lack of ambition in us. It's not humility. It's actually a sign of, of acedia, which is uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the deadly sin of sloth. So sometimes when we're not going out on a limb and we're not being ambitious, we think it's humility, but, humility, but sometimes it's spiritual laziness. It's a lack of passion and a lack of care and concern for things that we should be passionate about. Ultimately, this call to humility is a call away from self, but it's not a call uh, to, to, to lose the self. You still have it. You just won't find humility when yourself is at the center of everything. What's important here as Paul goes on is he makes an argument for humility and he, in the brilliance of Paul, um, makes this great argument to prove to the Christian, Christians what, the, uh, what uh, humility actually looks like and why they should participate in growing into more humble people. He's uh, he gives them a picture of Jesus. You see, when you start endeavoring to live humbly, um, and you start to, to endeavoring to try to be a more humble person, you can endeavor to do it and at the very same time lose it. You think, I want to be a more humble person. I'm going to start trying to, to, to work humility on myself. And, um, and, and you, you quickly forget that you're still the one that's at the center of your thoughts and your mind, and, uh, and you can lose it. Endeavoring to live humbly requires a focus, a shift in focus from self to another object. And what Paul does here is he simply shows us the, the, the truly humble one, the perfectly humble man, the God-man Jesus. In verses 5 through 8, he gives us this argument. He says that we should not do nothing from selfishness, uh, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What's his argument? Well, he says, take a look at Jesus. This is who you're participating with. Let's look at what he did. And what does Jesus do? It says that he is equal with God. He is perfectly capable and equal with God, has all the same glory as the Father, has all the same majesty as the Father, but he doesn't count it as something that he can grasp and hold on to and take advantage of. He has all the rights and privileges as one of the members of the Trinity, but he lowers himself and puts on a robe of flesh and becomes a servant. The word here that he uses, this emptying, is the, word, the Greek word kanao, which is a voluntary dep- deprivation of his exercise of lordship. This metaphorical, this not literal deprivation of his lordship. He doesn't lose his divinity whenever he becomes a man. He takes on flesh and he holds his divinity and his, his, uh, his rights and privileges as the, as the son in the Trinity. He doesn't count it as something to be grasped. He takes on the form of a servant. Kanao is used four times in the New Testament by Paul and it's never literal. 
It's always this metaphorical emptying. Jesus doesn't lose um, his divinity when he becomes a man. On the contrary, he keeps it. He just doesn't take advantage of it. So it's in some sense a way to, 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 that his divinity was concealed from them in some way so that the disciples, when they see his majesty, are astounded by it. When he calms the waves of the sea that nobody can control with their voice, he calms it. They look at him and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Paul says in Colossians 1 that this is the image of the invisible God. He is God with us. He's not acting like that uh, his, his, his privileges and his rights are everything that he's vying for and trying to get. His glory and all of that for himself. He's letting that go so that he can do something for others. Frank Thielman in a commentary on Philippians says that this was the mind of Christ, that he took a look at himself, he looked at his father, and he looked at us, and for obedience sake, and for a sinner's sake, for our sake, he held nothing back. Jesus shows, displays self-forgetfulness here. He considered himself, he moved beyond himself for the sake of sinners and for the sake of obedience to his father. Christ takes upon himself flesh lives the way that we uh, should live as those who, are, uh, who have no rights and privileges uh, to divinity. You hear that? We run around trying to, trying to make names for ourselves and get glory for ourselves. And the one who has glory for himself doesn't grasp at it and claw at it. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going not gonna to grab it. I don't need to. I don't need to. We run around trying to gain more for ourselves when Jesus simply passes it along. He gives it up. Christ didn't literally empty himself. He still had his divinity. He still had himself. So look at what the Paul's argument here. He says that, look, not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility doesn't mean that you dissolve into, uh, into something over here. You actually remain. When, if you're humble, you actually remain. You don't lose yourself. You're actually still there. He says you can, it's not wrong that you're considering your own interests. Do you hear that? He doesn't say it's wrong for you to consider your own interests. He says, just don't th- let that be the only thing that you consider. You have interests. It's fine. Consider them, but consider somebody else's is more important than your own. Paul, uh, uh, Michael talked about this last week when he talked about covenantal love, right? Covenanting with another person, covenanting with the church, making vows and promises to the church means that you, you say, I'm not going to hold my own rights and my own preferences and my own privileges up. I'm vowing to put the church in that place and all the people within it in that special place. And I'm going to empty myself and, and not grab onto my rights and privileges so that I can be a member of a church who builds others up. That's what covenantal love looks like. And that's what Paul is calling for his people to do in Philippians here to do. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. You know what's awesome about covenantal love, though, is, is this is what happens in marriage, right? Is one person gives of the self, right? Is considering the interests of the other person. What happens is they, they, they drain themselves of their preferences and privileges and all that, um, and they lose in some way. But then what happens when the other party is doing the same? The other party loses their rights and their privileges at the very same time. And what happens is that the couple is actually built up. That's a picture of what marriage actually looks like, what it should look like. We are, uh, this is what Paul is arguing for here. 
Because Christ was in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited. This is not a call to subject yourself to to abuse. This is not a call to, uh, to not consider your own needs. It's just a call to consider others' needs as important as your own. What's awesome is that Jesus has all the rights and privileges and he doesn't exploit them. How often do we spend all of our time trying to exploit our own rights, our own privileges? to amass and gain more for ourselves. And God is calling for us to voluntarily let that go for a second to build up another person. You see, there's a great stress on this fact that Jesus is, he's willingly doing this. There's some who actually charge uh, uh, and, and refute this, uh, this passage, this idea that, that Jesus is, uh, is, is lowering himself and is dying in our place. And they say that this is potentially cosmic sadism or it's an injustice here. What you see is that Jesus is willingly dying to, uh, uh, to his rights and privileges and dying for us. He's not being subjected to abuse. He's actually saying, I'm willing to take on this pain for the sake of other people, not because I'm forced into it. People who argue against this and say it's cosmic injustice still tear up and cry whenever people lay down their lives for others, don't they? They still do. This is, not, this is something to, that's admirable that Christ is doing. So if you're a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, you are called to humility. You're called to consider the interests of others uh, along with your own, but you're called to consider the other's interests over your own. So what is humility? Humility is a self-forgetfulness, this thing that God produces in us when he meets our needs and we're so filled up that we consider others over ourselves. We consider them, their interests, their uh, privileges, their rights, and we want to build them up. That's what humility actually looks like. C.S. Lewis says that if you meet a humble person, you wouldn't walk away from that conversation thinking that that the person is humble. Like, wow, that person is really humble. They weren't talking about themselves. You would just leave filled up because that person was so consumed and interested in you. They were thinking about you. They put your interest over themselves. They asked questions about you. You want to know what humility looks like? That's actually what it looks like. So what does this have to do with ambition as we, as we, we come to a close soon? Well, the reason why I spent so much time here is that you can have ambition without humility. And if self is at the center, you have the missing ingredient that humility is that'll help you become uh, not selfishly ambitious, but godly, uh, ambitious in a godly way. Humble ambition is this, uh, is this uh, ambition that's infused with more than, than, than just the normal aim of ambition. Godly ambition is, is what I'm talking about. I've spent so much talking, time talking about humility because humility is that special ingredient that we need to get our ambition in check. If you have ambition without humility, it's always selfish. It's always based on the self. Paul is arguing against that here in Philippians 2. So questions, is Jesus perfectly humble? Yes. But was Jesus ambitious? Absolutely. Did he have drive? Did he have drive? Absolutely. Did he have an aim, right? It's this great word, telos. Did he have a goal that he was shooting at? Was there a target he was trying to reach? Yes. It's humble. His ambition is, is, is humble because he's not aiming at self. He's actually aiming at something else. And there are uh, selfish ambition only has one goal. Like if you think about the goal of selfish ambition, it's always the self. It's glory for self. It's achievement for self. It's money for self. It's prestige. It's comfort for self. 
When you think about your future and your ambitious goals for your future, or your career, if you're, you're finishing your education or you're looking for a promotion, when you think about why you want to hit that target, why? Why is it that you want to hit it? Is it so that you can make a name for yourself? Selfish ambition only has one goal. That's the self. The sad thing is, James K. Smith says that the arch of ambition hugs the earth. Selfish ambition only has its fruit here on the earth. Selfish ambition only gets temporary relief from uh, and joy and satisfaction from the things that we acquire here. When you think about your career, when you think about your current pursuits, what drives you? What's the common is it for the common good? Is it for the sake of other people? Is it the, for the good of your neighbor? Or is it just something that you can amass for yourself? The problem with this is that selfish ambition, sometimes God puts the brakes on and you can't stop when you need to. I talk to students sometimes that, uh, on campus that are trying to become different, getting to different fields. They're highly ambitious and been told their whole lives that they could accomplish something. And then they run into difficulty when, we, when they get there, like the engineer who's horrible at math. What do you tell that student who's ambitious and who's been told they can achieve everything if they only work hard? How do you know? How do you differentiate between, okay, God, you may be putting a wall up and actually calling for me to do something else. It's a difficult spot. Sometimes God puts up a wall. If it's selfish ambition, I've seen people just drive themselves into the ground and still not accomplish that goal. Sometimes God puts up the wall. If it's selfish, you'll do whatever it takes to hit that target. Even when God is saying, this is not the right thing. If you're ambitious about relationships, right? And you're single and you want to be married. Sometimes the goal is just to be married. That's the target you want to hit. And you'll do anything to hit that target. Even compromise your beliefs. Maybe be with somebody who, um, who maybe you shouldn't be with. Somebody who's there to take from you. Somebody who's there not to build you up, but to take from you. There's a danger here when selfish ambition is at the helm. It has the reins. We are aiming at something and we will do whatever we can to get it. Even when God might say, put the brakes on. Humble ambition has two connected aims. Selfish ambition has one, the self. Acquiring for the self. Humble ambition has two aims. The glory of God and the good of others. So if you think about ambition, what makes it humble? Well, it's outside of the self. If you look at Jesus, he didn't try to, his ambition wasn't driven to gain more for himself. It actually, on the contrary, was actually to do stuff for others, to submit to the will of his father and to do good to the people that are around him. His aim was to please God. His aim was to please the father and his aim was to do what was necessary to redeem his people. This is why it's so appealing to us, right? Whenever you see pro athletes, they have this major victory, right? They worked hard to achieve something. This is why it's so appealing whenever they, after the big win, they say something like, man, I just want to give all the glory to God, right? I just want to thank God for giving me the opportunity to be here as if they didn't actually work hard to achieve it. They say, thank God for the opportunity, you know, that could, be, that could be false humility, but it's, there's something genuine about that if it's, if it's true. Even though they worked extremely hard to get it, their goal was not simply to win that prize. Their goal was actually the glory of God and their, them living out their, the, the, the calling that they have. 
So whenever you think about your ambition, do you consider the glory of God in it? Are you aiming to please him or is your aim simply to please the self? Are you thinking about the good of other people in your ambition? Or are you only thinking about the good of yourself? What's driving your ambition is the question that you need to think about. And uh, in this lecture that James K. Smith gave on, on ambition, he says that ambition always has two goals, right? If you think about everything that you do, that you're ambitious about, he says there are two goals. One is to win and the other is to be noticed. Ambition has two goals, win or be noticed. And if you can get both, that's even better. So if you think about what you're endeavoring to accomplish, is that your goal? Is it to win and to be noticed? Trust me that you can spend your life laboring after the attention that you think you need, that you think you're going to get through your performance and you might not ever get it. You could labor for your whole life with your performance and think you need to vie for attention and you might not ever get the attention you're looking for. You might not never, ever win and you might not ever be noticed in the way that you want to. And the sad thing about this is that in the gospel, do you know this, that God's attention on you is not predicated on your performance. Why does God pay attention to you? Why does he come to you? Why does he, why does he save you? Why does he notice you? It's not because you're here on Sunday mornings doing setup and takedown. It's not because you're here sitting in the church service this morning. Why does he notice you? He notices you because he's, 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 uh, you're one of his people and he, he loves you. He's not the father that you have to shock into getting to him to pay attention to you who's fixated on something else and you're screaming, look at me, look at me. Look at all these cool things I've amassed. Look at all these accomplishments, these, these accolades. Maybe he's going to be pleased with me now. He's not the one you have to shock to get to look away from the game. He's the one who looks at you because he loves you even before you've done anything to take notice of. This is a place we look for God to give us attention. We look for others to give us attention. And God's saying, it's all right. My lap is a place where you can come and rest. You can come here and you don't have to uh, fight for my attention. I'm giving it to you before you've actually done anything to deserve it. I'm giving it to you. So that you can be so full that you don't actually have to go and look for attention anywhere else. You see, in Jesus, when you win or when you lose, God says, well done, you did it. You didn't do it, but that's not why I love you. You ever feel that way? Whenever you win, you think this is why I have significance. God says in Jesus, you did it, but that's not why I love you. He loves you because, and you have his smile if you're in Jesus because Jesus uh, uh, has, has earned the smile of God for you. If you have the smile of God, Tim Keller says that all other frowns are inconsequential. Taking that further, if you have the smile of God, all other smiles are inconsequential. All other accolades, all other achievements are inconsequential when the Father looks at you and says, uh, you're mine. If you have the smile of God, be ambitious. Make bold prayers to God. Attempt big things for God. Try to get that promotion, but rest in the finished performance of a God whose aim uh, who was, whose aim was fixed on his people. And remember that what's most important is not that you hit everything that you aim at, not that you accomplish everything that you endeavor to accomplish. What's most important is that you rest in the fact that God doesn't miss what he aims at. 
He's aiming at his people and he will redeem them. And that's what Paul is telling us here in Philippians 2. And this is the great lengths that God would go to to redeem his people. This is what he does. Jesus descends from the highest place imaginable, goes to the lowest place that we can fathom so that he can take us from the depths of our plight, even the, depths, the, the, the victories that we have, which are minimal, so that he can take us with his work to the highest place imaginable with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this display that you've given us. Thank you that it's not just an example that we have to follow, but it is the, the means and the power uh, uh, to, um, that we need to, to endeavor to live humbly, Lord. I pray that you would take our eyes off of ourselves for a moment so that we would, uh, we would see the way that you actually look at us with love and with kindness, with a benediction and a blessing, so that we would be so full that our ambition, that we wouldn't lose it, but that we would actually have a different aim. Lord, to please you when you're already pleased with us and to do good to others because there are others whose interests we need to consider as well. So I pray that you would do that by your Holy Spirit because that's the only way that, uh, that, that this, this can actually happen. So Lord, we pray that you would do that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.